0: A diverse country needs a racially and ethnically diverse physician workforce, and the path to diversity in the workforce starts with the student population at our medical schools. But according to AMC's data, Black, Hispanic, and American Indian students remain underrepresented in medical schools, despite increasing efforts to create a diverse physician workforce. So how did this begin? How has it evolved And what can history teach us about racism in medical education today? In this episode of Beyond the White Coat, we're talking with Dr. David Acosta about how the history of racial segregation in the United States has affected efforts to build racial and ethnic diversity in medical schools. This is our conversation with Dr. Acosta on Beyond the White Coat.
1: Welcome to the second episode in the second season of Beyond the White Coat. I'm David Scorton, President and CEO of the Association of American Medical Colleges. In today's episode, we'll explore the history of structural racism in U.S. medical education. And I'm here with Dr. David Acosta, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer of the AAMC, to talk about this very important topic. Dr. Acosta is a family medicine physician who joined the AAMC after a distinguished career at the University of Washington and at the University of California, Davis. And Dr. Acosta provides strategic vision and leadership for the AAMC's diversity and inclusion activities across the medical education community and also leads the association's diversity policy and programs unit. Thanks for being here and sharing your thoughts today, Dr. Acosta.
2: Thank you, David. It's certainly an honor to be here today, and uh, thanks for this opportunity as well.
1: Well, let's jump in. Uh, What is the point of examining the past? Why is it important for academic medicine to own our history of racism, specifically in medical education?
2: Well, David, you know, I think we're informed quite a bit by our historical past. You know, clearly medicine's past is filled with amazing scientific discoveries and remarkable innovations over decades, and centuries, but medicine's past is also unfortunately filled with experimentation, structural oppression, and exclusionary practices. And I truly believe that understanding and being sensitized to that historical trauma that many of our population groups have suffered throughout the years really informs us on in understanding present-day issues and the realities that we face. For example, um, I think about the mistrust that is still prevalent uh, among racial and ethnic groups and other marginalized groups and how they think our health system has failed them. So I think for us to repair the harm, knowing that history is a really critical first step for us, acknowledging the wrongdoings, apologizing for our past, um, and making every effort to not only repair the past, but also to ensure that these harms will not be repeated as we move forward.
1: Well, I sure agree with everything that you just said. And, you know, it's interesting, Dr. Costa, in my years at the Smithsonian Institution, I gained an even larger and more profound appreciation of history, really just as you've described it. And so speaking of history, let's talk a little bit about the Flexner Report. The publication publication of the Flexner Report in 1910 really had a profound impact on medical education in the United States. Staff members at the AAMC have called its impact on the training of African-Americans in particular immediate and enduring. Please tell our listeners what was the Flexner Report and what were the implications of its main ideas, for example, for African-Americans?
2: I'm sure, David, that, that's a good question. Um, just for our listeners, that you know, the Flexner Report Examined the state of American medical education and led to reform in the training of physicians. And essentially, in 1909, Abraham Flexner embarked on his visit of 155 medical schools in the United States and, and Canada. Um, and essentially, um, he, when you looked at some of the, the Flexner Report itself, there's a particular chapter uh, that was entitled The Medical Education of a Negro. And I wrote down some quotes um, um, that I think are really important because it really does set the framework and the mindset that Flexner had as he started evaluating these seven historical black medical colleges. And the first quote um, in this chapter stated the following, quote, the practice of the Negro doctor will be limited to his own race, which its turn will be cared for better by good Negro physicians than poor white ones. So the Negro must also be educated, not only for his sake, but for ours, but he has besides the tremendous importance that belongs to a potential source an in infection and contagion. So his model to reform medical education was really based on the premise that medical schools um, should essentially be integrated into a university, have a sufficient financial endowments, and also have a university hospital collected with that. And at that time, essentially, it was a severe challenge for many of the schools, especially the historical black medical schools, um, to meet even just the financial requirements alone were an impossible benchmark. And when you consider the organizational educational requirements that Flexner was espousing, the most historical black medical schools were doomed. And in fact, um, you know, there's another quote that he had in this particular chapter that said the following, make believe, in the matter of Negro medical schools is therefore intolerable. Even good intentions helps but little to change their aspect. And unfortunately the result, five of the seven historical black medical schools closed, leaving only two, Harry and Howard, to remain open.
1: Well, that's uh, very, very uh, much an eye-opening and a mind-opening review. And many of us who know just a little tiny bit, just scratched the surface of the Flexner Report, may not have realized um, the very, very important uh, segments that that you quoted. Thank you, Dr. Acosta. Let's talk about the kind of racism Dr. Acosta expressed in the policies and practices and procedures of those institutions that we are really taught to trust what kind of policies and what kind of practices and what kind of procedures create racist outcomes in today's medical education environment? So David,
2: let me reframe this just a little bit. Um, so, you know, I would look at it in this way. You know, it's really the racist ideas that have been embedded in our policies and practices over time that have led to these exclusionary practices that uh, we experience today opportunities, and it's ultimately led to the poor outcomes that intentionally target and impact specific population groups, but also preserve the status quo as I've heard you say in many of your speeches prior to before. So when I think about policies and, you know, what are some examples of those, I mean, we could probably have a very long uh, podcast on this, but the reality there's certain areas that kind of pop into my mind, and that is thinking about our admissions practices, including outreach, recruitment, and selection, uh, how we have admitted our learners, but also even faculty hiring practices. Also, in the area of just meritocracy, of who gets awarded, who gets promoted, and who doesn't. Even we have a system that also focuses as more on weeding out, screening out, publish or perish paradigm. And then when I think about medical education, I think about how just the concept of race uh, in some circles um, has been used. is still being considered biological and genetic and not as a social construct still used in formulas, algorithms, and guidelines, even to aid in our diagnosis and treatment, that are not evidence-based, that are still present. When I think about admissions practices uh, on its own side, all you need to really look at is the trends uh, of our enrollment of of medical students. You know, if I just take the African-American enrollment, you know, up today, they presently, they make up about 7% of the total medical school enrollment. And then when we looked at medical, the enrollment of medical, enrollment of black students in medical schools over the last 40 years, we have found that it's only increased by 1.2%. Now, if I put that in numbers, we're talking like back in 1980, there were 999 African-American students enrolled in medical schools. If you fast forward today, it's only increased to 1,500. And if you think about that and put that in the relevance, we have twenty-one oh, 21,600 seats available for students. And today they only make up 1,500 of that as well. And again, I think a lot of it, probably the best illustration of this is just the anti-affirmative action laws that have been in place and are still in place in 10 states that have really prevented race-conscious admissions. And that's kind of a good example of you know where uh, putting racial inequities have been in place in our policies and processes. You know play out uh, quite, quite, quite so.
1: And of course, uh, as as you well know, Dr. Costa, we're still not done um, fighting the issue of affirmative action on on many on many fronts. You know the statistic you mentioned about uh, African Americans uh, in um, in medical schools matriculants increasing only about one percent. You know, 1980 was the year that I started my first uh, faculty position, and uh, in those days the number of black men matriculating to medical schools, made, they made up about 3.4%, and that hasn't changed at all in these 40 years. So really these, these data are, are, are quite shocking, I very much appreciate you bringing that forward. You know, you mentioned- and, and David,
2: they're also reflected in even our faculty hiring because, again, if we're not going to bring in enough of the uh, folks from a racial and ethnic background as well, I think about um, URM faculty make up only about 9% of our total full-time faculty in our U.S. medical schools. And even if I, again, with the theme of African-American, African-American faculty only make up about 3.5%. I'm Latino. And as a Latino, we only make up 5.6%. And then even more atrocious is again the American Indian only making up point one point six percent. So it's pretty profound.
1: Yeah, it's very very uh, very very sobering. And you're talking about overall statistics and faculty. If you look at leadership, uh, it's even more challenging. Exactly. Now, uh, you know, you mentioned in passing uh, uh, a couple of minutes ago uh, some ideas, uh, false ideas that we have about uh, race as a biological as opposed to social construct. And I wonder if you can share uh, some of the data, some of the uh, interesting data on misconceptions, even even recent medical school students have about uh, biological differences, say between African-Americans and whites and how that may affect their, their medical care. Sure.
2: No, and in fact, I think it's a very, very hot topic today with our medical students, um, and really calling this out. And so, uh, again, I, I'm inspired by their um, by what they what they're discovering, um, and also the questioning uh, of some of the practices that are very prevalent in medicine today. For example, when we talked about some of the different formulas and the algorithms used, we still take race into consideration when we figure out. Um, the glomerular filtration rate you know for renal functioning these days where there's actually a, a converting factor that if you are black um, essentially impacts um, you know the calculation of that particular formula. And the problem with that is, is that it sends the wrong message in the sense that we may not be pen, paying attention to by setting a different standard for African Americans with the, with the renal function that may really may miss, um, some of the um, some of the complications um, due to hypertension, diabetes, as we see that it is also these particular diseases are very prevalent in the African American uh, population group, as well as Latinos, as well and Native Americans. But uh, unfortunately, by by manipulating some of the formulas, uh, we may not be uh, finding and elicently uh, targeting enough of the African-American population and getting them into care and treatment. Um, as we also know that these three um, uh, targeted population groups also have the highest rate of end-stage renal disease and even needing renal transplantation as an example. You know, another example is just again on measuring um, pulmonary function by spirometry, which still incorporates race into its formula as well. Um, that, again, uh, for the same reasons I just uh, uh, quoted with the with the renal function, really, again, also may uh, misinterpret the findings that we find or think that we're finding with pulmonary function and the African-American groups as
1: well. Well, such a real, real critical point <coughs> that you make. Uh, thank you for that. Well, you know, I'd like to shift a little bit, Dr. Costa, to talk about your personal experience training <laughs> and, now, and now practicing in medicine. And we certainly, if you wish, can include examples if any of the practices you just mentioned actually affected you on the path. I know that you've spoken before about uh, your family uh, physician, your grandmother who was an herbalista, your brother Lou, an emergency medicine physician, and how uh, they've impacted your own career in medicine. If you would, tell us a little bit more about your journey, your motivations, barriers you encountered, or any other stories to help our listeners get to know David Acosta better, please.
2: Um, you put me on the spot, David. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it, what the question really, what really pops to mind are a couple of experiences that, again, I think we continue to learn from over time. Um, and the first one that pops my mind is that um, stereotype threat and the imposter syndrome is very much alive and still in my soul. Still ingrained in my brain. So, and, and by stereotype thread I, I mean um, the known stereotypes that I, as a Latino, carry. That essentially that I have battled all my life to try to disprove those particular stereotypes by some of the things I say, my actions, and uh, as well. But unfortunately, no matter how hard I try, depending on the context um, that it's in, I'm constantly reminded. Um, that essentially of people's and society stereotypes, you know, about the Latino population uh, in that. I can still remember way back uh, standardized uh, standardized tests and examinations have always been the monkey on my back, so to speak. Um, and I always ba- I remember baffling um, teachers, even in elementary school, when I took the standardized testing there, that they were never really reflective of how I performed in school and really was totally, Disconcordant with my my own um, grades that I received, and that continued throughout my life. And almost I f- I had this mindset that I created and fixed in my mind that you know the uh, standardized testing, no matter no matter what level of education, was still going to be a threat um, uh, to me, and was never going to essentially um, really truly reflect on you know my abilities as well. And that really didn't change in medical school. Um, and I'll share with you now and share publicly that um, I failed step one. Um, and I failed step one by about five points, I remember, between my second year um, and my third year. And as you know, passing step one, I was really critical in those days and still today in going on to the clinical wards and continuing the work. And you're kind of held behind until you can pass that uh, particular grant. And I was doing very, very well in medical school and I had great grades. Um, but again, the standardized test, and I missed it by five points, was pretty devastating to me at that point. But as stubborn as I was, I decided that I would retake the test um, in six weeks, try to prepare, just study a little bit harder, because that's that was the problems. that probably wasn't studying harder enough and studying the right things. And I took the exam six weeks later, only to fail it one more time uh and i missed it by one point so at that time the imposter syndrome rose out of it rose it seeped into my brain and basically said well maybe you don't need maybe you don't belong here you're really not that smart you only think that you are and maybe do somebody a favor and give up your position for somebody else who's more well deserving than you are so again i think those you know um I trudged on and took it a third time and did pass um, by overcoming some of my pride and overcoming some of the stubbornness I had and how to prepare best for this Um, and again was over and really, really learned again um, how to really overcome that particular monkey that was on my back for such a long time, knowing that standardized tests were going to be my, uh, essentially my life. My brother Lou said to me, he said, well, congratulations on finally passing this test, but you only have 15,642 more tests to go, you know, as a physician. You know the other things i think about it you know i attended a, a predominantly white um institution located in a very affluent community in southern california and really had no latino role models or mentors and I, and I think that was the norm that we all had in my class um you know i also remember you know experiencing racial bias and discrimination uh, my first day on in my ob rotation where I was mistaken for the housekeeper and was instructed to clean the delivery room when I reported Mm -hmm. um, to the L&D floor Mm -hmm. as well. You know, in residency, I remember witnessing an unethical transfer of an unstable young 21-year-old migrant farm worker to our hospital from a private local hospital that violated and violated um, MTELA law. And I was a receiving ER physician. I was on that shift. And I remember as a chief resident, um, myself and the residency program director, um, I was asked to deal directly with that responsible medical staff that did that transfer and to accompany him to this particular hospital meet with the executive medical staff at that time. Um, And I was really shocked because they certainly didn't demonstrate any remorse for the decision that they made. And they really attempted to so-called put us in our place because we were the county public hospital and we had an obligation to receive any patient that they were going to send to us. And that was so devastating to me because that really that experience itself upset me so much that I handed in my resignation to my doctor and director the next day because I really no longer wanted to be affiliated with medicine or this particular club, so to speak. But I had a wise, um, wise director who said, David, I need you to cool off for a couple of days think this over and let's reconvene again in a couple days and let's talk about this more. And I think his leadership and how he handled the situation and how we change policy and processes and was really an incredible um, changing event for me because that that experience itself really reinforced my drive to advocate for vulnerable communities and combat racist uh, actions that we see in medicine. And I even saw it in volunteering and community-run free clinics and in student-run free clinics. You, know, you get exposed to the countless number of patients sinking healthcare that cannot afford it. Uh, even, even folks who do have insurance, but again, can do not cover many of the things that, um, that have inflicted them. And they come in with all these unnecessary complications that you see due to conditions and disease that could have been prevented. I think that stuff like that is a thing that really keeps that fire within you, to burning to advocate for better health for all.
1: Well, I, first of all, I so much appreciate the fact that you had the courage to share those things uh, with us. Um, it's, uh, it's astounding. and It says a lot about you. And uh, of course, the irony uh, of those, um, those retries you took on step one and so on, the irony is that you uh, ended up not only contributing to your own patient's welfare, and not only contributing to the education of countless students and residents along the way but now you 're a national leader in many aspects, and uh, I very much appreciate that you that you share that dr Acosta. think it is so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the W so uh, as we both know, the WMC has a long standing commitment to promoting diversity in medicine, but this wasn 't always the case even with our association and share with the listeners, what was the AAMC's role in the history of segregation and medical education? And then, you know, move move forward in time and tell us what's the AAMC doing now to make progress in this absolutely critical area? Please give us the history, give us the current status if you would.
2: Sure, and, and when I read that the AAMC, um, you know, this history I really didn't know, um, but it was there clearly to see as in a resource center that keeps archives you know, dating way back as far as we can go uh, about some of the things that have uh, transpired at the AAMC. Um, so again, as we all know, that um, the AAMC was founded in 1876. Um, and at that time, the membership was limited to predominantly white institutions. And these institutions also restricted medical school admissions to women, Jews, and other people of color as well. Well, in 19, the history goes that in 1949, the National Medical Association petitioned the AAMC to issue a policy statement that said essentially that medical schools be open to all without discrimination related to ancestry or religion. And the AAMC's Executive Council response at that time was to maintain that it, quote, never interfered with admission policies of any of its member colleges, unquote. And so they declined to take a stand against segregation at that time and discrimination in medical schools. And it wasn't until 1968 that the AAMC, and this also included the AMA, joined to endorse the position that all medical schools should accept as a goal, their expansion of their enrollments and commit fully to ensuring that African-Americans and all minority students had equal and meaningful access to medical schools. And again, in 1968, again, it was a result of the Civil Rights Act that was passed in 1964, um, and also the Brown versus Education back in 1954 that really put um, the pressure on, I think, the AAMC, but also the AMA as well at the same time. So that was 1968, and in 1969, the AAMC established its first Office of Minority Affairs but came under the Student Affairs Division that was there at the time. And it really wasn't until 20 years later that the AAMC hired their first vice president, a physician, to lead diversity work. And that was Dr. Herbert Nickens, a name that we all know. And he created the Division for Minority Health Education and Prevention at that time. But then fast forward almost another 20 years, and it wasn't until 2007 that our past president, Dr. Darrell Kirch, uh, publicly acknowledged this history, and that was after receiving a letter from an emeritus professor at um, H- Harvard University to inform him of the hit of the past that the AMC had. So at that time, President Darrell Kurtz expressed the association's deep regret for the first time for the decision of the past, and took responsibility for the association's inaction. So as you say, Dave, as I fast forward to today, as uh, you know, how if we? If I ask the question, of how did we? Try to repair our past. You know, today the AAMC, as you have mentioned, is very committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion. Not only do we have a chief diversity officer, but we also have three senior directors um, and 16 staff that focus on workforce development. They focus on the learning and workplace environment, on becoming anti racist, diverse, and equitable and inclusive. We also have a portfolio that addresses population health today, health equity. Uh, social determinants of health and even racism—you know—we're interconnected now with all facets of medical schools, teaching hospitals, from student affairs to research to healthcare affairs, and assist in any way that we can along DEI matters um, that we can that we can help with, and that includes also offering um, DEI education and training um, where DEI matters.
1: Well, thanks, Dr. Acosta. That's a a very interesting and and sobering review of the history of our own association and uh, and an upbeat uh, review of where we are are going. And um, please permit me to say uh, to everyone listening that you yourself have been such a big, big part in moving us along in the direction we're going. You're quick to thank and comment on everybody else, but you've really been uh, an extraordinarily effective leader, not only nationally, but in this association. And I, I want to thank you for that.
2: Thank you, David, for those kind thoughts and words. Appreciate that.
1: So uh, now I want to drill down a little tiny bit more in, in, into where we are now, where we need to go. You've often used the, the, the term of systems-based change. And please please share with us what kind of systems-based changes are necessary to help academic medicine dismantle racism, specifically in medical education. Tell us your thoughts on this, if you would.
2: So, David, I, you know, I think about this probably in um, two distinct ways, but they're interconnected as well. And let me start with this one first. Um, you know, I think after doing um, DEI work um, for over 25, 30 years, you know, I, I've come to find that, you know, leadership does matter. You know, In studying the, looking at there's many studies that have shown both both in healthcare but also outside of healthcare in the business and the education world as well, is that change really only happens when leaders are intentional, and they hold people accountable for change, and I truly believe that if we're to dismantle racism in medical education now again thinking how long racism has racism has been in place, that we need transformative transformative leadership. And system based thinkers um, is what I believe we need in order to disrupt the disequilibrium they have, or the status quo, as you would say, that really sustains these racial racial inequities in academia. There's a preservation of this equilibrium there. And I think it's really gonna take important leaders to have the courage, um, and also the insight, but also being able to inspire others, you know, along the same the same route. A little bit more <clears throat> Tangible, I would say also there's another important, important piece to this um, in addition to leadership. You know, I think it's really critical for us um, in medicine uh, and academic medicine uh, to really learn from our other colleagues in higher education and really think about changing our approach, uh, changing the approach more to an equity-minded approach uh, as leaders and in medical educators. Um, And this approach emphasizes the need to be evidence-based, which, again, in academic medicine, we we certainly can relate to that. But that is equity-advancing, race-conscious, system-based thinking, and hold our institutions accountable for our learner successes. And let let me expand on that just a little bit. Um, When I say evidence-based, that gets back to how we initially started this conversation, is that you know, as leaders and as medical educators, you know, it is so important that we are proactive in understanding the social and historical context of structural oppression, experimentation, these exclusionary practices we've talked about, and how it's really impacted um, what we've done in higher education. Secondly, I think for equity advancing, this is about what equity advancing really means is about rejecting this ingrained habit that we have of blaming inequities on the learners' own social, cultural, and educational backgrounds. We really edu- equity advancing leaders, you know, disavow this conceived notion that um, you know our students from racial, and ethnic backgrounds are presumed incompetent. And it really focuses more on the assets that these particular learners bring to the table and really focuses on their lived experiences to really educate others and and not just focus on their limitations. By race conscious, I'm really talking about um, how do we take this deeper dive and look how structural racism has truly been embedded and influences our decisions in higher education, especially in developing our policies and processes. And by being equity advancing, this means being intentional and addressing those entrenched biases, both conscious and unconscious, you know, the prevailing stereotypes and any forms of discriminations that are in our policies and processes. And it really pushes us to really ask ourselves the question, you know, are exclusionary practices happening here? Are there manifestations of structural racism that are operating here in our institution? So this is really about being intentional and to identify, critique, and deconstruct policies and practices that are felt to be race-neutral, but that we know also sustain racial inequities. The next gamut, when I say promoting systemic-based thinking, this is really about making these transformative changes that I mentioned in the leadership that we need. It's really dis- meant to disrupt the status quo and to shift our paradigm from sink or swim, publish repairs, screening people out, weeding people out, more to this investment paradigm, um, and this may even include, like we did with our curriculum in the Flexner model. You know, how do we reexamine and re envision our meritocracy, which it may be as archaic as our curriculum had been? You know, uh, under the Flexner uh, Flexner education rule. And perhaps, you know, we need to rethink about defining merits and make it an updated and adjusting to meet the needs of and promoting the vitality of our faculty that are present today because our needs are so much different than they were years back. And then, lastly, it's about institutional accountability. You know, I really applaud uh, the work being done by the Association of American College and Universities and their Equity uh, Education Initiative because they basically have this mantra and saying that if, if, we invest truly in our learners, um, that means that we have to be responsible for our effectiveness as an institution in the student success. To the point they even say um, th- their mantra is if one student fails, and especially in higher education, then we have failed. And I think that's a mindset that we really need to really think about when we think about these system-based changes and really re envision, you know, how we do medical education. That if you know, after a student has gone through so much adversity um, and essentially has built up the resilience and they've gotten to into medical school you know we need to value the assets that they bring to that table and not find ways to screen them out but ways that where they can thrive even more and I think that's why some a lot of our HBCUs and our minority serving institutes you know um, have done such a good job in preparing you know some of their learners you know for the work forward.
1: Well, I just love your your paradigm of uh, investing instead of weeding. Uh, just a just a very important, very important way to look at it. Well, Dr. Acosta, this has been fascinating. Um, I'd like to wrap up by putting you on the spot and asking if you could say one thing, one single thing, to future physicians about their role in making these necessary changes in academic medicine. What would you say? Any words of wisdom or calls to action to share would be greatly appreciated, Dr. Acosta.
2: David, you've known me long enough that it's hard for me to say one thing. (laughs) So let me give you a composite, if that's okay. Um, Let me tell you what comes to mind. Um, And it just reminds me because I recently have had uh, the pleasure of addressing um, some student groups. Um, And this is what I told them, you know, I think we all have a role and responsibility to really address racial inequities, this is not about people of color only addressing it, but we all have an important role and responsibility and really learning how to become anti-racist because we don't know how to be anti-racist. And just because I'm a person of color doesn't also necessarily mean that I know how to do that. You know, it's again, as you have talked about before, you know, this is about acknowledging what we know, but more importantly, what we don't know. Um, and, again, filling in those gaps. And as physicians, that's what we always do. And when you think about that, that essentially we fill in the gaps of, because of the vulnerable positions that we're put in um, every day when we see our patients we're not quite sure what's going on, um, but we study up. We fill that gap uh, for the health sake of that patient. Otherwise, also, is that we can't do this alone. You know, it does, it's going to require collaboration and making partnerships that we have never made before, have gone out of our way to do. And especially with our communities that we serve, you know, we have to listen to their history, uh, especially, you know, the communities that we're anchor institutions in, because they can teach us a lot. And they probably already know about some of the solutions that we could consider, but we have just never taken the time out to ask them. But I think from the, from the blueprint that you laid out, too, I think the other important thing that is that we need to partner, without a doubt, with public health. You know, Our students have got it right. They say that you know, racism is a public health issue, and I have to agree, and for that reason, I think partnering up with our public health you know, and our communities uh, is really important. Why We have to give, we have to be vocal, and we have to support our public health and invest in their future, as you said, in the blueprint for COVID-19. You know, I think we have an obligation also to be health advocates, but also to model what health advocacy and health activism is in medicine uh, to inform the changes that we need to necessarily eliminate racism in medicine. You know, and I think truly really think it starts with us. And then I'll just finish up. There's a, there's, a, there's a quote I ran across the other day that just really spoke to me and some of the things that we talked about today that, that, I'll, uh, that I'll mention in just a second. And that is, you know, when when we ask ourselves as physicians, as medical educators, um, as health systems leadership, leadership, you know, if if we ask ourselves if we're going to truly make an impact, you know, we should collectively reflect on this particular quote, be influenced by it and evaluated by by this following quote that Mahatma Gandhi said. And he said, quote, the true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. You know, we know that the COVID-19 pandemic brutally reminded us how we measure up to this and how far we need to go. So I would just maybe even change that quote and say, you know, the true measure of medicine and healthcare can be found in in how we land up treating our most vulnerable members. And I think I'll end it there, David.
1: Well, Dr. Costa, I wanna thank you for joining me today on Beyond the White Coat. It's clear that we, as individuals, as an association, As the whole sector of academic medicine and as members of society, we really need to do our own work individually and collectively to make academic medicine diverse, equitable, inclusive, and anti-racist. Part of that work involves owning our history and carving out new ways to promote anti-racism in medical education. And Dr. Costa, I've got to say that as much of a pleasure as it's been to interview you today and to work with you I also know that I will be passing the mic uh, to you to host uh, one of the upcoming episodes in Season 2. I want to thank you for everything you did today, for everything you're doing, period, and for what you will do as an upcoming host of Beyond the White Coat. Thank you, Dr. Acosta.
2: Thank you, David, again for the opportunity. I always enjoy our conversations together. Um, So thank you for doing this as well.
1: Thank you very much, and we'll see you again soon on Beyond the White Coat.
0: The Beyond the White Coat podcast is brought to you by the Association of American Medical Colleges, a not-for-profit association dedicated to transforming healthcare through innovative medical education, cutting-edge patient care, and groundbreaking medical research. We'd like to extend a special thanks to our guest and the AMC staff who made this episode possible. I'm Stephanie Weiner, AMC Director of Digital Strategy and Engagement. And I'm Laura Zelaya, Digital Content Producer for the AAMC. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Beyond the White Coat podcast, and we'll see you next time.